Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Phil Craig. And I'm Andrew Loney. And together we aim to bring you the most scandalous stories and some of the most scandalous people in history. So thanks for joining us here on the Scandalmongers podcast. Hello, Andrew. Hello. An exciting, another exciting week. This is when we're beginning to do our two a week. Yes. Uh, due to popular demand. And we're doing <laughs> it under themes, which is, uh, I hope, is going to work. Well, we'll see. Yes. Welcome to part two of Empire Week. There'll always be an England. What a similar patriotic thing. But you've got a lot to talk about because it all ties into your research. Yes, though there's lots to talk about. Um, also, a few new things that we're we're trial trialing on the pod. We're going to do us a little up some of the month since it's now the end of February, and on next week, the beginning of March, we're going to start giving away free gifts. Well, a kind of prize. We're going to choose our favourite comment on either Apple um, or YouTube, and we're going to send somebody who made that comment one of our wonderful and very desirable mugs. How's that? That sounds a good deal. Yes, well, I've been going through the comments, and I started a few for Monday, but um, uh, I wonder if I could just go through a few more, just going back over some of the recent uh, programmes. So, um, well, one I'd like from Mary Shaver, it seemed to be the wrong, she sent it to the wrong person, saying, it looks like you have some wonderful sewing ship tips to share. Um, but um, always respected Richard Kay as having his finger on the pulse of royal life. Um, great broadcast. Can you bring Richard Kay back to comment on The Crown? Really? Um, uh, consistently great series from Donald Black. Thank you both. Um, what else have we got here? Um um this is my favorite current favorite podcast elizabeth bassford 8979 um a great podcast with interesting historians thanks for sharing stories parts of history and interesting facts and analyze great show sylvie from montreal so that's nice to get this sort of feedback Uh, but there's one that's very much about you from last week from jonathan brewer who is one of our friends Say, isn't it lovely to hear Andrew use the Victorian and Edwardian expression "golly" or "gosh" to, to express delight and surprise? My favourite, yes, of my favourite eras. Well, it's been uh, a good month. I mean, we had we had Myling, Myling, uh, with uh, Lucy and her cats. Don't forget the cats. Our first Probably cats, yeah. Am- Amadeus and Brunhilde. They got a lot of love on Twitter. Of course, we had Norman Baker being very serious and very um, dog dogged with his investigations. Yep. Two two important cases there, David Kelly and and the the, the flight to Kuwait. Yeah, and our oldest ever guest, I think, Anne de Corsi, yeah. who was also one of our funniest and smartest, uh, yep. talking uh, really brilliantly actually about uh, well Princess Margaret and Lord Snowden and their slightly wacky marriage. So and she's going to come back, I hope. I mean, lots of interest in having her back to talk about some of her other books. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, lots of new things. 
Um, if we like your comments, we're going to be sending you a mug or one of you a month. So do keep adding comments. That's also really important to the pod. The more comments, the more likes, the more subscriptions we get, the higher our profile, the more people will find us and the more shows we can do. So it's called a virtuous circle, I think. Yeah. And maybe even go into a studio. So I suppose part of our charm is the uh, my lack of techno technological skill uh, and your jumpers. Yes, well, um, Marks and Spencers will be going to be sponsoring our jumpers, no doubt, soon. Yeah, well, I don't know about the, the... It's charming. I mean, the thing is, with with studios, you can only really talk to people who can come to the studio. Yeah, yeah. So, and we wouldn't be able to get some of the people we're getting, because, I mean, we've got Kitty Kelly coming up. Uh, actually, we've got about five in the bag at the moment. Some very yeah. interesting people. Lots of people. We're talking about Agatha Christie. Many um, of them joining us from abroad. You know, that's something you can really only do online. And we've got a special spy spy week, I think, next week, haven't we? Yeah. Next week is spies. Or is it biographers? I'm not sure. Biographers we've next week. Spies the following week. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. Um <laughs> anyway, it's Empire Week, and we're gonna talk about Suez, which is, you know, one of the great stories of the latter stages of the British Empire and the and indeed the French. Um and you know, a pretty dark stain on British history, most people would agree. And it leads me to just talk a little bit about something I raised in the last show, which is what I call imperial muscle memory, the way that Britain in the latter part of the Second World War and in the years that followed didn't always live up to the principles for which it fought that war um, in public. You know, ever since the Atlantic Charter, which is in 1941, and the years that followed, um, you know, Britain and its colonies and its dominions were fighting for against tyranny, for self-determination, for freedom, for people's right to live under the governments of their own choice. And yes, a lot of that was achieved, but a lot of it wasn't. Um, there are reasons. The Cold War is a big reason. Suddenly there's another big force in the world, and that does affect the way that things pan out. But it's also an excuse, I think, in some places not to award independence, because it's very easy to look at the people who want independence and say, oh, you're just communists. I mean, this happens in Vietnam, of course, famously. Yeah. Uh, you know, nationalist feeling is is explained away as communism, and and everybody knows that the French fought a, a disastrous war against um, the Vietnamese people, and everybody knows the Americans did the same. But not many people know that that's part because of what Britain did. You know, Britain sent troops to put the French back in charge against the very people who had been fighting with us in the war against Japan. It's an extraordinary story. It's but certainly what I'm going to be covering in my book. Yeah, and I mean, it ties in a bit with Mountbatten too, because in some ways Mountbatten, who was against the Suez expedition, also was actually quite pragmatic and liberal in terms of dealing with, with some of the nationalist forces at the end of the war. And that's why he got India. It's the job. Yes. Oh, it's not straightforward, and it's not everybody. You know, there are all sorts of competing forces. Um, but even within the Labour governments of the time, there's still a kind of instinct to, to boss people about, to grab hold of resources. And there's another factor too, which is that there's another empire coming, and that's called the American Empire. And it doesn't like to call itself that, but that's effectively what it is. It's flexing its muscles, it's trying to grab resources, take charge of places, uh, not in the old-fashioned style of, 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 of sort of plumed hats and parades of elephants, but by running oil corporations and by using the CIA to get rid of people it doesn't like, which leads us to Iran. Now, this is only a couple of years before Suez. And this really is um, Britain working this time with America, really doing the imperial muscle memory thing, you know, getting rid of a regime that it didn't like by all kinds of uh, very dubious methods. And there's a wonderful documentary series from the 80s called End of Empire, which I've been re-watching. And a lot of the people from that time are still alive, were still alive then. And they really do come across as that old-fashioned, rather sinister kind of, British administrator, British bureaucrat, or British businessman, and they were all men, kind of ruthless, kind of cold, kind of calculating. You know, this isn't the way we like to think of ourselves, but it is the way that a lot of the rest of the world saw us. Um, and sort of arrogant, I suppose, and entitled. Yeah, and, and quite proud of it, of, of proud of their own kind of cold ruthlessness, how they got rid of these people and they made sure that the oil companies got what they needed. And that, of course, sets the scene for a couple of years later, Suez. Anthony Eden is the Prime Minister. He's not a hardcore imperialist. Not at all. I mean, I don't know how much you know about Eden, but he was always one of the more liberal members of the Churchill gang set. He waited a long time to get his chance. And when he does get his chance to become Prime Minister, he's faced with this crisis in Suez. 
And he falls very quickly into these older patterns of behavior, which is a big reason why Britain joining him with France are equally, equally culpable in trying to kind of rewrite history and push, push back on history because Nasser, the man who takes charge of Egypt, he's a nationalist. Yeah, he's got connections to the Soviets, but he very clearly represents what the Egyptian people want. Um, but that isn't what Britain's commercial interests want. And so we're not very good about hearts and minds either. That, I mean, as you say, when, when trade comes into conflict with these things, then trade wins. But, but also you would have thought that they would have tried to win the hearts and minds rather than just to use brute force and muscle. I don't know. I think it was still very much the attitude that that is the way you dealt with, I'm going to say, colonial peoples, colonised peoples. Yeah, you, you, Britain was very good at promoting people from the countries that colonized, giving them great jobs and educating them in British universities. And, and in some cases, you know, then handing over fairly smoothly <clears throat> to independence. But often it wasn't that. It was more, if you don't know what you're told, bad things will happen to you. Um, and there wasn't much regard for the ordinary people of Egypt in any of this. And it wasn't just a crisis for Britain, it was a crisis for the Commonwealth. Well, that's, I think, what's interesting about the, the, this talk. I mean, I think, I hope, because we're getting a, a different perspective from Canada and the role of Lester Pearson. That's right. Pearson is a really important diplomat, Canadian, gets drafted in, as we're going to hear, to try and sort this mess out. But you know, Australia and Canada and other countries in the sort of British world, they all take very different positions, and it's a big stress for them. And it's, it's just one of those moments where people have to choose. Uh, you know, are you going to be with the future? Are you going to be with the past? Um, and that's uh, that's that's why it's such a great story. And things change after Suez, don't they? I mean, it it is a wake up call in many it ways. It is, it is. Um, and I think, well, you know, Canada. Uh, we haven't had a Canadian interview yet. I don't no. think yet. Uh, no. it, it it kind of transforms its sense of itself and its own self image. I think through this exercise, because just jumping to the end, you know, the idea of Canadians as kind of global peacekeepers becomes a really important factor in kind of world politics, partly because of this man Pearson, who's quite a, a remarkable character. Um, well, I don't know much about Anthony, though. Do you want to introduce him? Well, Anthony Anderson is, is a TV producer in Canada who's written a biography of Lester Pearson, uh, and he was suggested by one of our listeners, Catherine Anno. Um, and, um, yeah, it's, 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 you know, he's... he's uh, writing very much from that perspective of the Canadians. He's in several books on Canadian history. And so we thought it would be good to have a slightly different perspective uh, and move away perhaps from our always our very Anglo-centric perspective of, of, of some of our speakers. Um, and I think a lot of our listeners come from Canada. Uh, and so we felt we needed to give something back. But we're always interested in other ideas. Um, I'd love to talk at some point about John Buchan, who was a governor general who I wrote a book about. Uh, 20, 30 years ago. Um, but um, yeah, no, it's, 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 we're trying to open up the number of people and we're trying to also balance some of the royal gossip with, with much more serious history. <laughs> well, next week we're starting with Kitty Kelly. So there you are. <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> That's exactly. a great range. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah, so but the top in every range we have. That's very good. All right. Well, I think we've, especially we got on enough about various theories on history and imperialism. Let's talk to somebody that actually knows something, shall we? Yeah, over to Anthony. Well, we're okay. off to Canada for this podcast uh, and a Canadian view of a British subject in some ways, Suez, yes. but a slightly different perspective because Anthony Anderson has written a biography of Lester Pearson, which uh, produces some new insights into the Suez crisis of, of 1956. Can you, can you tell us a bit about the crisis and also about what you feel you, you've, <laughs> the new angles that you've got? Well, um, what can I tell you about the crisis? I feel like it's, it's the childbirth of every British, you know, history student growing up. It's such a big part of British oh, history. Oh, you would be surprised how little we know. And how little, <laughs> we have a lot of listeners from um, the States, from all around the world. Um, I, I think Suez, I'm afraid, is receding into the into uh, the middle distance of history now, isn't it? Yeah. So, I mean, a basic, a basic, uh, a basic account, really. Okay, let's we'll do a very basic account. So the Suez Canal flows between the Mediterranean and the Red Sea, hundred miles long. <clears throat> Sorry, um, got a bit of a <clears throat> recovering from various Canadian calls. Um, 
it well, was our sympathy. <laughs> I mean, it was a it was a canal. It was an engineering marvel. And more than that, it was a metaphor that seemed to be embedded in the British imagination. This was an imperial lifeline connected India um, to London. Uh, you could not uh, you could not conceive of the empire at a certain point without obsessing over that canal because it brought this whole thing together before globalization. It was part of an earlier phase of um, globalization. <clears throat> so to attack the canal in any way, shape or form was almost to, uh, to attack the motherland. And I was trying to think of a metaphor. Um, uh, imagine someone nationalizing the M1, you know, imagine <laughs> someone nationalizing Lord's Cricket Ground. It was almost, you know, it was that intense, that emotional for British politicians. So what happens is, you know, the, uh, uh, the French build the canal and Britain hates that. This is in the 1850s and 1860s. Um, Britain's Navy and Merchant Marine use that canal more than anyone else in the world. And at a certain point, the um, Egyptian government, which owns a chunk of the canal company, uh, is broke. Uh, Disraeli jumps in and buys 44% of the Suez Canal Company. So Britain is the largest shareholder of the company that operates the canal. So it's a very big deal. Makes money, keeps the empire integrated um, and, you know, you're not the Mediterranean is now a British lake, as someone put it. Um, for most of the 18th and 19th century, Britain had a fairly firm grasp on Egyptian governments. It was a bit of a soap opera chess game. They could more or less shuffle the scenery and the players so that there was generally a fairly supportive Egyptian government in place. Uh, no matter what happened in 1952, that all changes. There's a military coup. Uh, Nasser comes to power. He's a military colonel. And suddenly London is in the dark. They don't know who these new revolutionaries are. Um, and all the old tricks are gone now. So is Egypt effectively independent now, but the British are clinging onto the canal? Or is it I would sort of quasi-independent? Nominally point? independent, as independent as anyone can be in the sort of imperial scheme of things. I mean, I think Egypt joined the League of Nations in the 1920s. But Britain was always there, hovering in the wings, um, taking care of business. <laughs> and uh, But everything changes with the military coup. And at the same time, the Americans are now moving into the Middle East. They want to have their say. They've made an oil deal with the Saudis, which infuriates London. So, you know, the, the, the British playground is getting congested as more and more players come in. So, yeah, Nasser comes in with his military... Um, uh, command and it's a very different world and gosh to try and crunch it all down um well effectively i mean because I, well, I do know a little bit yeah, about this of course, of course you do. Uh, the british um you know that they, they don't they don't like the nationalization yeah. and they get together with the french and, and yeah. it's the old way of thinking i call it imperial muscle memory in a book i'm writing at the moment i like that yeah and you know they just can't stop themselves they need to do something so with the french they cook up a scheme the israelis come on board as well Israel launches an invasion, the French and the British, oh, that's a surprise, which is a lie, because they know all about it. They then send British and the French send troops in, and suddenly there's a war. And I guess that this is the great diplomatic crisis, isn't it, of the 1950s? Yeah. Um, so I'll just fast forward with you a bit. So, and and I, my perspective is a biographer of Mountbatten. Is Mountbatten, who is uh, chief of uh, first Soviet sea lord, uh, actually threatens to resign over this because he thinks it's a bad idea, bad yeah. idea militarily and morally. <clears throat> yeah, no, it was. It's one of those odd, um, those odd twists of psychology and fate. You know, Anthony Eden had negotiated, had been, had you know, been foreign secretary three times in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s. In the 30s, he'd negotiated a defense agreement with Egypt. So his, his working knowledge of Egypt goes way back. In the 50s, he is Churchill's foreign secretary, and he is everything you would want a sort of uh, a British foreign secretary to be in those days. He is moderate, temperate, long-sighted, nuanced he wants to get all the british troops out of egypt because you, you know you had the suez canal base which was the largest military base in the world and churchill and sort of the right-wing tory element are furious you can't take us out of egypt what will that mean that will you know it's a terrible retreat but eden at great uh, i think uh political risk 
manages to persuade Churchill and the party to get all the British troops out of Egypt. So here is someone who is, you know, at his best, I think, convincing a very belligerent Churchill and the Tory party, there's a new way to act in the world in the 1950s, and that's through cooperation. We can't impose our will anymore on anybody. We're going to have to work with informal networks and informal alliances, but we're going to have to negotiate now. We can no longer impose our will on the world. And Eden was so clear about that. So why does Eden behave differently? Is there a medical reason for this? Well, yes, you're, you probably know. Um, I think there's, well, the two reasons. It's the curse of the number two becoming the number one suddenly. And, you know, Eden was a brilliant number two to Churchill becomes prime minister in April 55. Um, his hold on the party is, I think, tenuous at first. He didn't have much experience domestically. Um, he'd had a botched um, surgery on his, uh, God, some part of his, um, some part of his, he had, he thought he had gallstones. It turned out to be much more complicated. The surgeon was terrified to be operating on the foreign secretary, punctures his gallbladder. And that triggers all these, I mean, Eden nearly died in two operations, barely survived the third, and his stomach was a mess, so he had to take all these painkillers. Um, and he had trouble sleeping, so he had to take sleeping pills, and he had trouble waking up in the morning, so he had to take amphetamine. So he had this sort of chemical cocktail, little black briefcase carried around by his uh, detective, and he would take different doses of different medications for whatever he was suffering from. So I think that definitely affected him. But there was something about him taking over after Churchill, having the Egyptian government nationalize the canal. And here was Eden, who had uh, resigned in 38 over uh, Mussolini with Chamberlain. So he was this great figure of the anti-appeasement, you know, the, the great, as Churchill put it, that, you know, the one strong young figure standing up against the drawling drifts of tide and sur of surrender. So he couldn't, he was fighting against his own image as this great uh, champion of democracy against the dictatorship. So Nasser nationalizes the canal in July 56. And Eden's first instinct is to, uh, you know, we're going to have a military response. So were there domestic reasons <clears throat> to do this? I mean, often that's what uh, politicians do if they need to get a bit of support. Or was it just yeah. all about testosterone? <laughs> um yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Um, there were definitely domestic reasons. And for, for much of the crisis, I don't think Eden was too far off the mark because, you know, 62 thirds of British oil came through the canal, a quarter of the imports. Nasser was a military dictator. He was not a friend of, of Britain. So I think Eden was right to be concerned, right to be vigilant. But it's as if he abandoned his best instincts and right away thought, I'm going to take this guy down because there was the cabinet meetings and then there was the separate Egypt committee meetings, sort of the private, you know, inner cabinet meetings. And they more or less said a few days after the nationalization, our goal is to bring down the Egyptian government. And have all those, sorry to draw, have all those papers been released because for a long yeah. time they were closed. Yeah. And, and what was the position of, the Amer of America uh, at this time? It may shock some people to know that America was the restraining cautious diplomatic force in all of this and they did eisenhower and his secretary of state john foster dulles did everything they could to bog the british down with diplomacy and it infuriated um eden and cabinet that you know we want our great wartime allies to rally to the flag but eisenhower had a pretty cool um assessment that you couldn't go marching into what was then called the third world anymore I mean, they were doing it in Guatemala. They were going to be doing it in Indochina, but the Americans, you know, just like they... Falklands, really. <clears throat> yeah. Again, with the Americans restraining. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short term plans at uh1.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. 
With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Being influence. Yeah, no, it's really amazing to see them being the voice of peace and, and cool, cool, clear thinking and, and Eden and his gang and Macmillan especially racing ahead you know really wanting to like from day one the first cabinet meeting after the nationalization cabinet decides we will use force as a last resort and then it gets a bit fuzzy well what's the last when do we get to the last resort but there was a call up there was mobilization they sent troops um into the mediterranean the ships into the mediterranean um which would have worked if, if eden had pursued a diplomatic course maybe all of that saber rattling would have worked but then he Anyway, the, the whole meeting with the Israelis overturned everything. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's in your book, which I'm going to quote at you, um, your very good book about Lester Pearson, who we'll get to in a minute, I promise. You That's say fine. the Commonwealth mosaic had ruptured into black and white factions. Yeah. Um, India, Pakistan, Ceylon, howling for British blood, while New Zealand and Australia standing firm by the mother country. Canada, sort of in the middle. Yeah. But it's, it's one of these moments where the world is changing and perhaps people hadn't really noticed or these kind of displays of bellicose imperial might just don't work anymore, especially if America is saying no. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the irony about all of this is, well, when we get to November, um, you know, the British are bombing Egypt at about the same time that the Russians are going into Hungary. There's nothing we can do about the Russians. They could, you know, they were too powerful. And Eisenhower just said, that's World War Three if we take them on. But we could take on the British in 1956 because they were reasonable. They're a democracy. They listen. So at what point did Canada get involved as a kind of honest broker, if that's the right description? Yeah, that's what we like to call ourselves. But um, we we were involved from the beginning. And in fact, even before that, I, th I think uh, we had a very good high commissioner, Norman Robertson, working with Pearson. Pearson and Robertson had gone to Oxford Anglophiles, Pearson had been at Canada House in the 30s, so they really they knew everyone in, in the British cabinet. They were very plugged in. Um, and they were the last generation of Canadians to be that plugged into British politics. Um, so they did everything they could to restrain Eden. And Pearson had known Eden since the League of Nations days in the 1930s. They weren't close, but they respected each other. Um, so we went in uh, to try and stop the mother country from doing this terrible thing to herself. And uh, Canadian foreign policy is always sort of uh, made incredibly complicated by the fact that they're English Canada and French Canada. French Canada wants nothing to do with the empire. English Canada was torn. You know, we are we, we are only um, truly Canadian when we are f following the Union Jack. We are only truly Canadian when we follow our own path so there's always been this incredible tension from south africa world war one to you know for english canada how closely do we follow along with britain so pearson did a very uh, controversial or adopted a very controversial policy to um say uh we of course support britain in general terms but we cannot support military force in egypt uh just can't do it, and that, that that really cost him in Canada. So there was there were people who I mean, accused him of being a traitor, a Soviet stooge, an American puppet. Um, there's there's a very strong, famous speech he makes isn't it, at the United Nations. Yeah, you write about, which is a bit of a turning point in the in the in the, in the whole saga of Suez. Well, so, I mean, sorry. Sorry, let you finish. But what's the significance of 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 what's Canada's role? I mean, um, what do they achieve in some ways as the honest broker? Pearson flies down to the General Assembly in November and convinces the General Assembly to set up the UN's first peacekeeping force. And I don't think there is another diplomat who could have done that. Um, and I'm trying to be very modest and Canadian in saying that. Um, there, he was so connected in Washington, London, Paris. India respected him. The Arabs didn't entirely trust him because he'd been in support of uh, the creation of the State of Israel, but they at least respected him as a UN, as a credible UN uh, diplomat. So against 
incredible odds and with the british and the americans not speaking to each other with the russians rejoicing in all the division with pakistan on the brink of leaving the commonwealth um pearson manages to get all these angry delegates together at the un and say let's create a peacekeeping force get it in the middle and go from there um what canadians don't know we don't tell ourselves is that that didn't make peace in the Middle East, or it didn't make peace at Suez. The real peace was made when Washington told London in no uncertain terms, we're going to destroy the pound. You won't get any oil. Um, and that's when Harold Macmillan, who'd been so hawkish, sort of threw his hands up in cabinet, apparently, and said, that's it, we're done. Oil sanctions, we can't go on. So we didn't make, the Canadians didn't make the peace, but when there was an opening, we were able to create the peacekeeping force, which helped you know, end the war. And was it a story that was well known in Canada and elsewhere, or is it something that you've really discovered? Well, I went, I dug deep, obsessively deep. Um, I spent seven years on the book, on and off, in between day jobs and all the rest of it. Um, so we know the broad strokes, but I think I was, you know, I, I found myself traveling into deepest, darkest Surrey to find the last what I thought was the last remaining member of the British delegation, Sir Peter Ramsbottom. I spoke with Douglas Hurd on the phone. And Douglas Hurd was then, I think, 22, the youngest member of the British delegation at the UN. So there were a handful of, of British delegates I spoke to. This is going back to the 90s now, I guess, when I started, um, who remembered what Pearson had done and were very grateful for what Pearson had done because Pearson um, never condemned london throughout the whole crisis he expressed dismay or disappointment but there was no outright condemnation whereas london felt completely betrayed by eisenhower and uh, and dulles and it was probably the worst rupture in british american relations i think it's so interesting i mean pearson if anybody's flown into toronto <laughs> they named your main international yeah. after him i think he was the first canadian to get a nobel peace prize wasn't he not the first. Oh, the Peace Prize, yes. Sorry, the Peace Prize, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and also, I think a lot of Canadians are very proud, if I may speak for your people, your nation. They're very do. proud of their history of peacekeeping uh, and uh, yeah. their role in the world as, as honest brokers since that time. And he kind of, you know, invented that model or helped invent it. Yeah, um, I know. He personified it. I think we've all, um, the great peacekeeping, uh, what's the word? So it sort of it became a bit of a state religion here. And I think we're all leaving the church because we've learned that it's limited. Um, there's only so much you could do at certain points. And and Pearson stressed that. Like when he stood up in the UN and said, let's send a peacekeeping force, he was also urging um, you know, a peace conference. Like we can't he said peacekeeping is basically just a band-aid. The great powers have to get in there and actually negotiate a peace. Um because, uh, you know, it's, we've seen it over the decades. We've seen failures in Rwanda, Yugoslavia, and all the rest of it. Um, and what most Canadians don't know is that uh, we, uh, at, the, at the end of the Second War, going into 46, 47, Pearson was very disillusioned with the UN. And he knew it was not going to ever really be able to protect uh, the collective peace. So we began pushing for NATO before anyone else did. And, uh, it, you know, we're, we're a middle power then. London and Washington respect us, but we're not, we're not, um, we, we can't move mountains. So we called for a regional security organization. And it's only when um, Ernest Bevan started calling for one in early 48 that everybody said, okay, maybe we'll, we'll take this idea. But uh, we, Pearson really believed there was a place for NATO to keep us safe and a place for the UN for negotiations and peacekeeping, but we needed both because the UN couldn't do both. So the flag, uh, Canada's national flag, I guess at this time still had the Union Jack on it, the Union flag. Yeah, on it. Um, yeah we had the red ensign. So all this kind of reinvention of the country, which led to the maple leaf flag, which is, is that around this time? Sorry, I should know. No, most Canadians don't know. It's fine. <laughs> but it, it, it's, uh, it, was, it was like a no longer uh, you know a friendly relation of britain rather than a sort of um liegeman of britain would be the image i suppose yeah we um, i mean it was i mean 
A friend of mine tells the story of her grandmother in the 1980s standing up at football games to belt out God Save the Queen. Everyone else around her is singing O Canada, but this lovely old woman in the 1980s is singing God Save the Queen. So it's a it's a really fascinating relationship uh, in terms of, you know, Canada wanted to be independent, whatever that means, but it did not want to let go of the ties to England for a really long time really long time it are there other trigger points apart from sewers as part of this process of 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 finding a new identity um i think every war in a funny way the great war was a really disillusioning time for canadians because when britain declared war in 1914 we were automatically at war we didn't we didn't declare war ourselves you declared it for us and Canadians came back from that wondering why had we gone over the top and, you know, and to be slaughtered without having had a say. So that actually led to us taking control of our foreign policy, joining the League of Nations. Um, World War II is the same thing. Pearson would often go down to Washington and the Americans would just say, well, you're British. We don't really need your opinion. We've spoken to London already. And that would infuriate him and his whole generation. So it was it was a slow evolution. You know, the Americans had their uh, revolution in 1776. And a whole chunk of those British subjects, because it was a civil war, really came up to Canada to remain loyal. And that sort of sense of idea of loyalty was so deeply embedded in English Canadians for so long. We rejected that ridiculous mob down south, you know, and we've come up here for peace, order and good government, as we say in our constitution. Um, we don't, we, you know, we have, we have little time for the mob to the South as we do today. Um, so it was a, it was a long, gentle evolution because that's the way we like to do things. We don't have angry, violent outbursts really. Um, and it made life difficult for Pearson in 56 because yes, as he said, um, our flag was the red ensign. So we had the Union Jack in the corner. Our military uniforms were identical to British uniforms. Our head of state was the queen. We're, of course, part of the Commonwealth. Our anthem was still God Save the Queen. So it it made, um, it was probably the toughest thing Pearson actually had to do. He So he gets the General Assembly to create peacekeeping. And everything's running along smoothly. We've offered troops. And then the Egyptian ambassador calls him in and says, Mr. Pearson, thank you so much for everything you've done. Appreciate it. But there is no way Canadian troops can be part of the UN force. And Pearson is outraged, flabbergasted, why is this? And he just outlines the reasons. You have the same queen. Uh, you know, we can't tell the difference between your troops and British troops and all of this. And that was, uh, you know, political death for Pearson. If we couldn't be part of the peace force, uh, he would look like, um, well, loser, basically. So he had to work through India to get to apply pressure to Egypt, work on Washington to apply pressure to Egypt to get us into that first peacekeeping force. And in the end, we couldn't even send troops. We had to send all the log uh, logistical support staff who were out of the way behind the scenes. So, and then as I've mentioned, Pearson was accused of being a traitor by large sections of the Canadian pop population for not supporting Britain fully. So. Did Canada get involved in Vietnam? Because um, Britain didn't. Right. And that Did helped Canada us get involved? out. No, we sold, we made a lot of money out of Vietnam. We sold lots of horrible things like napalm and, and army supplies. But uh, it was, uh, there's a <laughs> great story of, um, we stayed out. We, we, you know, we, Pearson, who was prime minister in the 60s, said we support the American strategy, defeat communism. We don't like a lot of the tactics, but we support you overall. And in 1965, he went down to, Philadelphia to accept some kind of peace award at a university and um, he had he had agonized over this portion of his speech where he said um, I would like to suggest that you Americans consider a pause on the bombing it's a very modest suggestion just consider a pause on the bombing when you think it's appropriate when you think the North Vietnamese might want to negotiate that's all he says in the, in the larger body of a speech that basically said, you're doing the right thing, defeating communism. So he gives a speech in Philadelphia. He knows it's going to cause a bit of a stir in Washington, so he doesn't send an advanced copy to the White House, which is breaking diplomatic protocol. 
delivers his speech. And that night he gets a call from the White House from Lyndon Johnson, who is this big, boisterous, cantankerous Southerner Texan, says, you know, Lester, I want you to come out to Camp David and have lunch with me tomorrow. And Pearson thinks, oh, my God, hope this is going to go well. Goes to, goes to Camp David, gets there for lunch. President is cool. <laughs> they have a barely civil lunch. And someone remarked the president only had two Bloody Marys before lunch, not his customary <laughs> four. So something is up. And at some point, Pearson feels he has to say to the president, what did you think of my speech? And Johnson erupts, just, it was horrible. And then let's go out for a talk. So he drags Pearson out to the terrace that surrounds Camp David. The doors close. And there's only one account of this, the Canadian ambassador looking out through the window um, at the terrace. And you can see Johnson like waving his arms and screaming and swearing. And apparently he grabs Pearson by the collar and he is thought to have said, you can't come here and piss on my rug. And Johnson in a way was right. Pearson had broken diplomatic protocol because he had questioned American foreign policy on American soil, felt he had to do it. But Johnson just raged and raged and raged. How dare you betray me in my own back garden? Well, I think history, history will recall that it was Pearson who had the good judgment then and not Johnson. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you see, someone at the same time also said something along the lines of the Americans are best friends, whether we like it or not. So <laughs> you guys have an ocean between you to sort out your differences. We're right next door. Yeah. Well, it's, a, it's such an interesting insight into, you know, that sort of behind what, what diplomacy is really about. Mm. Um, you know, especially at these big turning points, uh, Bloody Marys and fistfights on the terrace. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and and Eden. I mean, if Eden hadn't had a botched operation, he would have been in better health. Uh, if he wasn't so anxious to succeed, you know, to succeed Churchill for so long. I mean, there's that great story, which I'm sure you know, of uh, the night that Eden or Churchill's last night at number ten. He's sitting on his bed, staring into the distance, and his private secretary whose name escapes me says something Colville, was it? yeah are you you know are you feeling sentimental sir are you you know he goes and churchill apparently just says i don't think anthony can do it and this is the night before eden is to take over well that's so interesting. terrible thing to say i mean we talk about Suez as a diplomatic you know disaster and everything else and the, the sign of the changing balance of power in the world and so on I guess it was also, I mean, I don't even know. It was a military campaign and, and there must have been casualties. I mean, I don't even know. I should do. Was it were there substantial casualties? I don't think there was substantial on the British side. I think there were a lot on the Egyptian side because there was the bombing campaign. Then you know, the troops landed. They took Port Said, worked their way down through half the canal. The Egyptian or the Israelis had been there for about a well, week. This is British, French and Israeli troops working together. Yeah. And so, I mean... Once Nasser nationalized the canal, he, he knew that if I could just keep the canal working as a business, I'll get away with this. And it seemed that way because the ships kept passing through. He didn't block British ships. And he was just going to play for time. Eden needed a pretext to go in, and Nasser wouldn't give him one. And in, by October, so this is four months, five months into it, it really looked like things were going to settle down. Selwyn Lloyd, the foreign secretary, was at the UN negotiating with the Egyptians, and he called Eden that weekend and said, I think I've got something of a deal. We won't get the canal back, but, um, you know, they're going to they're not going to block ships. It's not going to be politicized. I think I've got something. And Eden went, right, go for it, like negotiate it. And at that point, it would have just been one of these little blips. But then Eden got this call from the French saying, can we can we stop by? I think he was at um, Checkers. Can we stop by tomorrow? You know, the, the French ambassador is not told. The British ambassador is not told. A French general and a French cabinet minister show up. Eden is alone with his private secretary, Guy Millard. And Eden turns to the private secretary and says, don't take any notes. And they have this conversation in which the French say, we've been discussing things with the Israelis. Things are a little bit tense in the region. The Israelis are thinking of attacking Egypt 
what would you do in that circumstance? And this is the great pretext Eden has been hungering for. You know, what are you going to do if the Israelis go in? Will you respond militarily? And Eden says, well, I just might. I just might have to respond militarily. And the, there, are no, there are no notes of the meeting, but more or less the French said, look, if the Israelis go in, you and I, the British and the French, can go in afterwards. We can pretend to be peacekeepers. We can pretend to go in and separate the combatants. And there's your pretext. Wow, that's and so interesting. Was thrilled. Was thrilled. How these things work. Uh, it's and funny, so, that we, we in yeah. Britain talk about Suez as this great debacle, mm. and, you know, the turning of the tide and the, finally the blinkers fall off and yeah. realizes it's no longer a great power. Do the French do the same? Because it was just as much a disaster for no. France. And, and they had their own terrible war in Vietnam going on. Well, at the Algeria, same right? And yeah, Algeria. Indochina, Algeria. So, it, it, it's, it's, but the French don't seem to beat themselves up. Apologetic. <laughs> Undaunted. Mm. They couldn't care less about American opinion, public opinion. And they, were, they felt so betrayed by Eden because Eden called them up and said, I can't go on anymore. The Americans are going to destroy the pound. And the, and the French said, let's keep going. Let's just keep going. But Eden couldn't. So yeah, the French were really tough, and they were driving the agenda. And so they all—it was a—it was a very timed-out bit of theater. October twenty-nine, the Israelis attack. You know, Britain and France pretend to be outraged. Oh my God, there's an invasion. Then they issue an ultimatum. London and Paris say to the two armies, "If you do not stop fighting in twelve hours, we are going in to restore the peace." And it was such a flimsy bit of theater that no one bought it like the canadian prime minister louis saint laurent was so furious pearson had to spend most of his time calming him down we cannot denounce britain even in this act of madness and so um i mean the ultimatum is insane because britain and france are saying to egypt stop defending yourself against an invading army in 12 hours yeah wow so, of course, the Egyptians refuse to, you know, they're, they're going to keep defending their country. And so Eden stands up and says, well, the fighting is going on. So we must land as peacekeepers. You know, we must land to, to separate the Egyptians and the Israelis. And uh, that's when it all began to unravel. And that's when Eisenhower got really furious. Because that's when he, he really understood that this was all cooked up. So, the Fr again, the French didn't care. They didn't have the relationship with Washington that London did. So, and then in we the were end, the I think this is what I'll take away from this conversation. In the end, it does actually come down to individuals, doesn't it? All these moments in history. I think so. It does. I mean, yes, I agree. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's very personal. It's. I mean, it's it's personal. Eden did not get along well with John Foster Dulles, the American Secretary of State. That they misunderstood each other throughout the entire crisis, or pretended. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. ...to misunderstand each other. 
um, everybody liked Ike and everybody thought, well, Eisenhower likes London. He was great with us during World War II. And Macmillan went over there, went to Washington, met with Eisenhower. They talked about World War II, you know, reminisced about their time in North Africa. And Macmillan came back and said, Ike will lie doggo. Mm -hmm. So they, so yeah. What were the long-term consequences? I mean, looking in, 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 in you know, if from the perspective now of 60 years later, 70 years later. You mean for the British and Suez and well for all the all the, the, the world, the I guess. In it. You know, was this just a little blip, um, or or are we living with some of the consequences now? That's a good question. Um, the older I get, the more that I think everything becomes a blip. Um, you know, the further things recede, tomorrow we're dead. Yeah, I mean, Suez was so definitive at the time. It seemed like the bells were tolling, the empire was over. Um, I mean, Macmillan came into power and, and I think he tilted to Washington so strongly. That was one of his primary directives. I've got to repair the breach. And that's really why Pearson got involved. He, We were so horrified by the breach between Washington and London because we could not conceive of a world order in which London and Washington were not allies. That and, was untenable for us. And do we not get the winds of change? I mean, does this not push yeah. the Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, mean it, in some ways, it's a catalyst for change in, in the post-war period. Yeah, that, that's where my research stops, Professor. And I, and I don't, don't wish to wander into fields that I haven't borrowed into already. So I don't well, know. You've, you have taken us down a very interesting path anyway. And, uh... You've taken us to a good point, And we need to come back to that point with someone else. It's like a relay race. Someone else. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's a fantastic insight. It's a subject that I really... You know, I think I know a little bit about history, but I know so little about Suez, and I'm, I know a lot more oh. now. So thank you for that. It's my pleasure. My pleasure. Very, very yeah. nice to talk to you. Yeah. yeah, and thank you for being our first Canadian guest. Delighted to cross the pond virtually. Go Canada. Good. Thanks. Bye. Thanks a lot. Bye. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Scandalmongers podcast. This has been a podcast world production. You can get in contact with our show by emailing team at podcastworld.org, placing Scandalmongers in the heading, or via our social media links within the show's bio.